My favorite news item of, uh, of this month, anyway, was story uh, of the evacuation of the city hall in Akron, Ohio. Did any of you hear about that one? Akron, Ohio, they had to ev- evacuate the city hall one afternoon uh, because the, uh, the workers there found a, uh, a metal walking stick, kind of pipe-like, that had duct tape over both ends of, uh, of the stick. And with the words written on it, very prominently, along with some other scribbles, but the main words that's, that uh, stuck out to them was, natural hunka kaboom. Natural hunka kaboom. So what would you think if you saw something like that, right? Pipe bomb, correct? And so they, uh, they called in the bomb squad, and they evacuated the building, and they took a long time figuring it all out. And as it turned out, it wasn't a bomb at all. It was, it was actually a walking stick, homemade, belonging to a man whose birth name was James Lewis Krosna. But he had legally changed his name to, guess what? Natural Hunka, H-U-N-K-A, Natural Hunka Kaboom was what he changed his name to. He said he did that, uh, by the way, because he had a, a uh, pest, uh, pesticide business, and he thought that was a cool name for his pesticide business. So he just gave his, his uh, name to himself uh, as well, the business name. So it turned out he was a good guy, no harm meant. Everything was okay, just accidentally left it. At, uh, at City Hall. But then the name he learned there was, you know, you got to be careful when you have a name like Kaboom and you're leaving around walking sticks that look like pipe bombs. There's another name uh, quite frequently that stirs people up. At times it ignites anger and vitriol, but also sometimes it ignites explosions of joy and hope. The name is very simple. It's Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. As we return to our uh, Sunday studies called One from the book of Acts, we'll be in chapter 2 today, book of Acts chapter 2, as we return to this study, let's learn uh, why that happens. Why, why does that name Jesus stir up so much controversy? And what are we to do about it who are followers of Jesus? Or maybe if you're here today and you're not a follower of Jesus, what are you to think of all that? Let's find out. The first part of, uh, of this chapter 2, which we've, we've studied previously, uh, we began to, to learn here that on a religious festival day called Pentecost, this is a true story, religious festival day called Pentecost, 50 days after the resurrection of Jesus, God fulfilled a promise that he had made. It was the promise to give to his people the gift of the Holy Spirit, to send the Holy Spirit not just around his people or on his people, but to send the Spirit into his people. Never before had God done that. Never before had the Spirit actually come to indwell in humans. Never before had the Spirit come to indwell and stay there in humans. But on that day, the Spirit came to indwell as God had promised long ago. He did that to to bring about in the followers of Jesus an unprecedented spiritual life, a spiritual life that could not be had in the same way previously to also bring about an inner transformation to the followers of Jesus, to also give them unprecedented understanding and guidance from the Holy Spirit, and then also to empower followers of Christ to to serve God in that special one great task of the era in which we live, the the task of taking the good news of people to all peoples on earth and making disciples of Jesus from all the nations. When the Holy Spirit came on that day, we learned here earlier in Acts, he made himself known in a unique way because the Spirit is Spirit. He is invisible. So God had promised the Spirit would come. He had especially told the, uh, the apostles that as this new era begins, you're going to be the first to receive the Spirit. But how would they know? 
How would they know when the Spirit arrived? Well, as we read here in the book of Acts, uh, God provided some audible and visual signs of the Spirit's presence in this new way. They were symbolic uh, uh, signs, uh, such as a roaring wind, uh, tongues of fire that some people saw, a vision of tongues of fire that some saw, and most, uh, most noticeable, perhaps, the, the temporary ability of the apostles of Jesus to speak about the mighty deeds of God and to do so in languages that they had never even learned, specifically the native languages of the immigrants and visitors from foreign countries who were in Jerusalem that day. And that, of course, was, was amazing, and it captured the attention of the people there in Jerusalem. And because it was a festival time, there were a lot of people there. There were a lot of people in the streets. We're told that a large crowd of people gathered around seeing, hearing, observing this, and they wondered what it was all about. And we've read in Acts 2 how the apostle Peter took advantage of that opportunity, and he began to explain to the crowd that this coming of the Spirit marked the beginning of a new era in redemptive history, the history of God acting to redeem sinful and spiritually lost people. Peter quoted from the Old Testament prophet Joel to, uh, to point out that the coming of the Spirit was something that, that God had, had had in mind for, for a long time. But now the time had come, and this time then, this coming of the Spirit and this symbolic uh, uh, acknowledgement of His presence marked the beginning of, of what in the Old Testament they called the last days. The last days. That's what we live in right now. We're in the era of the last days. It's the final time period in history in which God is working his great plan of salvation before the the time of judgment arrives. And we live in this very unique time. And as followers of Jesus, of course, the spirit coming and, and us being able to partake of it, you realize we're privileged to live in this era. As Peter was, was uh, acknowledging this and telling about it, he continued on to tell the crowd uh, about the most important information that they personally needed to know for their own well-being and, and information which we need to know today. is just as vital for us today as it was for them. Let's read about it. We'll go to Acts 2, uh, verse 22 is where we'll start. Read through verse, uh, verse 36 here to start with. Here's what we need to know in the last days, and I'll just give you the summary right up front. Peter says the most important subject for this time period is Jesus. It's the person Jesus. He dominates this time period, this era in which which we live. As Peter said that, he, he went on to talk specifically about some things about Jesus. What about him? Well, Peter said there's some key facts I want everybody to know. This was Peter's message that day to the crowd. There's some key facts you need to know about this Jesus, this central figure in this era in which we live. And uh, let's read about it. So I'm reading out of my New American Standard uh, English translation. Men of Israel, Peter said, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst, just as you yourself know. This man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. But God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death, since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope. Because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made uh, known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of your uh, gladness with your presence. Peter's quoting Old Testament there. 
Brethren, Peter went on to say, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him with an oath to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, that he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh suffer decay. This Jesus, this Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear. For it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. First fact that uh, Peter brings out here. He's saying, here are the facts about Jesus. First one you need to know. I summarize it. Uh, what Peter said, he was a man. Who was Jesus? He was a man, but he was no ordinary man because he was a special man from God. No ordinary man. We know that Peter said because he was attested to by God. He was proven by God to be from God, by the miracles, by the wonders, by the signs which God performed uh, through him. In the Greek text, the original language, that word miracles means literally mighty works works of incredible power, stunning acts of divine power that only God could do. But linked with that word was the word signs. And the word signs means just that, that the, these, these miracles were not just mere physical marvels. They weren't just made to impress. They had spiritual value in pointing to spiritual truths. And by these, Jesus proved that he was special, that he was from God. What's really significant here, when you read this, this is a, a, the, the historical account of, what, account of what happened on that day of Pentecost. The, what's interesting is that, that Peter said to the crowd that day, Jesus proved himself with these miracles, and he did so, verse 22, in your midst, just as you yourselves know, Peter said. Isn't that interesting? He doesn't hold back from saying, Jesus proved himself. And he actually says to the crowd there, and you know it as well as I do, that he did these miracles. Was that really true? Did they know? Yeah, they were, they were the people of Jerusalem. Jesus uh, spent a lot of time in Jerusalem. He did miracles there. Some of the people in Jerusalem uh, that day were, didn't live there. They lived other places, other places where Jesus had been. These people knew about the miracles of Jesus. They, they had been eyewitnesses to them, some of them. Those who weren't knew eyewitnesses. It was that tight of a community. They would have known uh, from their friends, their neighbors, their co-workers. And so they knew... All about Jesus. It's, it's interesting that Peter doesn't hesitate. He just brings it right out and, and he lays it right out in front of them. It was an accepted fact that these mighty works were done by Jesus. You know, even Jesus' enemies gave up on saying he didn't do these works. If you read the gospel accounts, the history of Jesus, you'll see that the enemies uh, at first just want to reject Jesus and dismiss him. When they figure out they can't dismiss him any longer because he's, he's doing too many things that are attracting too much attention. He's making too much sense that his enemies then switch over. And the way they deal with his miracles is by saying this, not that he didn't do them, but yes, he does them, but it's because he's a demon. They said he's, he's, a, he's, he's of Beelzebul. He's one of the prince of demons, they said. That was their way of getting around it, of trying to discredit Jesus because the miracles were proven. It says in the, in the, the Gospel of, of Luke that people, when they saw these, these acts of Jesus, at first, they were just amazed. But then when they saw what he was really doing and the good he was accomplishing, they actually were saying, God has just visited us. 
God has visited us here. He's visited his people. Why would, uh, why would some people reject Jesus then? Why did some people uh, choose to nail him to a cross instead? Well, because obviously if you even acknowledge this, these, uh, this evidence of the miracles uh, as being of God, then, then you would have, as one person has put it, you, you would have had to, to welcome some unwelcomed theological implications. There would be some things in there that, that you would have to start admitting. That, that God had sent Jesus, that he was someone you, you should pay attention to, that, that you needed to, to actually listen to him and, and follow what he was saying. And there were some people who just didn't want to do that. They would have to believe what they didn't want to believe. They would, have, they would be on the spot to honor Jesus. And that's why they rejected him. And it's the same thing still happens today. You know, there's evidence still that Jesus is who he said he was and is. And God speaks internally to men and women through the Spirit, drawing people to Jesus. But often, in spite of that, people still reject Jesus. They still turn away from him because they don't want to bow down to him. Jesus addressed this at another time. He said, you know, if anyone is willing, this is in the Gospel of John, chapter 7, verse 17, you read this. Jesus said, you know, if anyone is willing to do the Father's will, if anyone is willing to do his will, he will know of the teaching, that what I'm teaching you. He will know of the teaching whether it is of God or whether it is of myself, Jesus said. In other words, Jesus said, you know what the problem is with people accepting Jesus? He said a lot of the time the issue is not that they don't have the evidence. It's not that they don't sense that God is really working on their heart and drawing them and, and saying this is true, accept it. It's that they don't want to accept it. They don't want to bow down. They don't want to give their life over to somebody else. They don't want to worship a, a God. Good, good question to ask yourself today. When I'm rejecting Jesus, what's the real issue? Is it because, because I'm saying, well, I don't have enough information. I don't know if I should really do this. Or is it because in your heart you're saying, I don't want to do this, and I'll put up every excuse I can not to. God's willing to help us know the truth. Jesus, during his time on earth, God did help. He proved that, that Jesus was no ordinary man. So there's fact number one, Peter says. I just want to make sure everybody knows it. Here's the evidence. Jesus was a man, but he was no ordinary man. Jesus goes on to, or Peter rather, goes on to fact number two. This Jesus, he died, he died the death of a man, but his death was no ordinary death. That's what Peter uh, is getting to when he speaks to the crowd in verse 23. And he says, you nailed him to a cross. You nailed him to the cross by the hands of godless men. He actually died a human death. No one can point up there and say, oh, Jesus never really died. No, it was a whole public execution. Lots of people saw it. They saw Jesus die. They saw his body taken down dead. He died. When Peter said, you nailed him to a cross by the hands of godless men, he was referring to the fact that it was Roman soldiers who actually carried out the execution. They didn't really know much about God. They were godless men. But the instigators of the execution did know a lot about God. They were the religious leaders in Jerusalem. And they concocted and carried out this scheme to, to get the Romans to put Jesus to death. And along the way, they stirred up many of the citizens of Jerusalem to vocally support them or otherwise to stay quiet in a, and not oppose them so that they could crucify Jesus. And that was a pretty unique happening in itself that this great conspiracy would go on. But it's not that that made the death of Jesus so uh, unordinary, Peter says. Rather, there's more to it than that. That's unique that someone would go into a conspiracy to make that happen. But Peter says here in verse 3, what really made Jesus' death uh, unordinary was this. It was by, verse 23, the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God. See what Peter's saying here? He said, look, wicked humans chose of their own free will to murder Jesus, but it was God the Father who allowed it to happen. 
He allowed it to happen. And he oversaw it all in such a way that it matched up all the fine details of the Old Testament prophecies of the death of God's special one. The one that God was sending who, though innocent, would take upon himself the guilt of sinful humans and pay for their sins so that they might have opportunity to receive forgiveness and reconciliation with God. God was behind that. It says in Romans 8.32, that was, that was God the Father's idea. God the Father uh, did not spare his own son, but delivered him over for us all, Romans 8.32 says. This was part of the plan of God, Mark 10.45. Was Jesus okay with that? Jesus said of himself that he came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. This was a determined effort on the part of God. So the death of Jesus was no ordinary death. It was an extraordinary death because from the beginning, it was a death that was at the center of God's plan to bring spiritual life and spiritual salvation to spiritually lost people. God's love is so extraordinary that he went out of his way to put that plan in place. Peter goes on from there and he says, here's fact number three. You really need to know about Jesus. A third fact that everyone needs to know. Yes, he died, but after he died, he was buried, but he didn't stay buried. He was buried, but he didn't stay buried. Peter told the crowd, godless men put him to death, verse 24, but God raised him from the dead. He raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death. In other words, Peter said Jesus was resurrected from the dead. He was resurrected by the power of God. That's affirmed uh, throughout the New Testament. Ephesians chapter 1, he was raised by the strength of God's might, it says. Now, we notice Peter here not, not denying this, not hedging around this at all either, right? This is interesting. Peter's already said, hey, you all know about the miracles of Jesus. Here he's talking to a crowd and he says, essentially, and you guys know this too, right? Jesus resurrected. He does not hesitate to say Jesus actually was resurrected from the dead. This was, of course, would be the greatest of miracles if it actually happened. And, And this was the city, remember, where Jesus was put to death. These people knew all about the crucifixion and the burial. So you say, why was Peter so incredibly bold then to say that? Why didn't the crowd just laugh at him at that point and walk away? Well, very simply because Peter was confident about this because he, along with some others, had already seen and touched and talked with the resurrected Jesus. Jesus, over a period of 40 days, met with a lot of people. We're told that at one time he appeared over 500 at one time. Peter knew firsthand that Jesus was alive. And the crowd didn't laugh at Peter because, you know what? Things were just not quite right with all this that happened to Jesus. They, they knew, first of all, remember Jesus' previous miracles. And then they had heard reports of his resurrection, again, from people they knew, from eyewitnesses. They knew that the authorities had yet to present any evidence that Jesus was still dead. They couldn't because he was alive. And also now these followers of Jesus were, were behaving peculiarly. They were exceptionally bold. Weren't they the guys just 40 days ago? 40, 50 days ago? Weren't they the guys that on the night of Jesus' arrest, even though they said they were totally devoted to Jesus, when the pressure came on them, when the, when the officials came to arrest Jesus, that they abandoned him and denied him, denied even knowing him? But now all of a sudden, there's this story that, that he's resurrected and people are saying it's true. And now these disciples are up there, these guys who are totally scared, and they will not back down now. And they're saying it. And all these, these things start adding up in the crowd's mind that something is not right. 
People keep telling us, these authorities keep telling us he didn't rise from the dead. But the fact of the matter is something happened. Peter's very bold about about that. Peter doesn't stop with this uh, assertion that Jesus is alive. He goes on to say that Jesus is alive because that too was part of God's great plan of salvation. This is what Peter clarifies. He goes and uses the Old Testament scriptures again. He says, they spoke of the promised Messiah being born into the line of the great King David. Well, that fit Jesus. And he went and he showed from there that, that in the Old Testament, there was talk even then, even though it was not fully understood that the Messiah who would come, he would actually overcome death. That being so then, it was impossible that Jesus would not be resurrected, Peter said. Because once again, this was part of God's plan that the Messiah conquer both physical and spiritual death so that his followers also might conquer and be victorious over physical and spiritual death. This was all part of God's very, very great plan. And then Peter came to his his fourth point. His last big main point in this was this. Jesus left planet Earth. He rose from the grave, but he did leave planet Earth. But here's the good news. He didn't leave us alone to save ourselves. He didn't leave us alone here. In the book of Acts, chapter 1, we read previously about Jesus' departure from Earth. How after, uh, after having that period of 40 days where he met periodically with, uh, with his disciples, after he had taught them and gave them instructions for ministry, then he did leave the scene. He disappeared from them in a way that, that made it clear that he was departing and that he wasn't going to be returning anytime soon. But he had previously also made it clear to them that, that he was not leaving them alone. And we might say not leaving us alone either. He made it clear he was physically departing from this planet, but he wasn't disconnecting himself from them and from us. He wasn't going away into retirement, never to show up again. He wasn't going on a long, interrupted, uh, uninterrupted vacation. He wasn't uh, taking on another job somewhere else. No, it was that he would still be engaged with his people, but in a different way. Jesus made that clear. He would lead his people, he said. He would lead uh, the ministry on this planet from heaven. He would do it from the throne of God. He would do it through the Holy Spirit, whom he had promised to send. And that's what he's doing right now, Peter was saying. That's what Peter was getting at when he told the crowd there, verse 32, Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God and received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth that which you both see and hear. You're wondering about this miracle on on this day, this happening that's going on that's so unusual. You're wondering about this. Well, it came about because Jesus reigns in heaven now. And through the Holy Spirit, he's still doing great works here on earth. He's doing great works that glorify God. He's continuing to draw spiritually lost people to himself. He's continuing uh, to save uh, spiritually dead sinners and bring them back to life with God. And once again, Peter affirms, this is all part of God's great plan to save sinners. It, was too, uh, it, it too was told of the Messiah in the Old Testament scriptures. God's plan all along was that Jesus reigned from heaven after he accomplished his work on earth. And so there was Peter's four great facts. And, and so he brings it to a conclusion then with a very important statement. All of this being so, Peter says, all of this being the case, here's what you need to know about who Jesus was and who Jesus is. And Peter says, let me just summarize it like this. Verse 36. Therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. Let everyone know, the facts back it up, God has made him both Lord and Christ. Who's Jesus? Well, he's the Christ. 
He's the Messiah from God. He's the anointed one from God. He's the savior of the world that God provided to accomplish what we could never accomplish on our own. And he is the Lord. The Lord. Interesting word, isn't it? Still today in some countries, that's kind of a courtesy title, if nothing else. But in that day, that that word Lord meant something. One who was a Lord was, for one thing, a ruler. That's one of the basic ideas of the word Lord, a ruler. When Peter was saying Jesus is Lord, he's saying he's taken that, that role of lordship in heaven. The scriptures tell us that's exactly what Jesus did. He took that role of Lord of the universe there. Also means very clearly that he is the Son of God, God the Son, the second person of the Trinity. He's God himself. He is not just Messiah, he is Lord. Philippians chapter 2 says what? God highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name which is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow of those who are in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. There is no one higher than him. He is Lord of this earth. He is Lord in this universe. Peter drives all this home and he says this, all these facts, they add up to this. They add up to this. And this is what Peter was really getting at that day with these folks. He's saying, I'm not just helping you understand who he is. I'm helping you understand something important related to you. I'm helping you to understand that Jesus is the way. Jesus is the one way. He's the one way to God. Remember how as we started through the book of Acts, we keep running across all these ones. One community of God, one spirit, one task that dominates all others. Here Peter is pointing to the fact Jesus is the one way to God. Why is he the one way? Because of who he is and because of what he did. No one else has ever been like him, Peter was saying, and no one else will ever be. No one else has ever done what he did, and no one else will ever be able to do what he did again. No one else is doing today what he still does. He was the one Messiah, the one Lord from heaven. He still is. No one else matches up to him, and no one else is capable of saving us and bringing us to God. Who else had that power? Who else had that righteousness? Who else died in our place? Only Jesus. That's him. That's him. The one one way to God. That was Peter's message. The response of some folks is, of course, well, you know, that's what you think. Jesus never said that about himself. Well, actually, he did, though, didn't he? He made that very clear. He did it in a lot of subtle ways, but one time he came right out and said it, John 14, 6, in a way you couldn't miss. He said what? I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father but through me. Those were Jesus' own words. Some people say, well, if that's Jesus, I don't think he was being very kind and humble, you know, to be so arrogant and, uh, you know, to be so exclusive. But he wasn't being arrogant or exclusive. He was just being truthful. Think about this. To not say it would have been unbelievably harmful to the human race. For Jesus to not declare who he was, but one way would have been so harmful. For him to be falsely humble and not say that he would leave the human race uh, without any hope, uh, that that would have been terrible. The disciples, uh, like Peter, knew that. And so they didn't hold back from saying what Jesus taught them. The disciples stuck with that. They stuck with that through thick and thin, even when under pressure of persecution. As we read further in the book of Acts, we'll come to Acts uh, chapter 4. And in that chapter, we'll read how 
How living in a situation where they were under pressure to deny Jesus, when they faced persecution for still following Jesus, their statement was this, there is salvation in no one else, they said, Acts 4.12. For there's no other name under heaven that has been given, given by who? From God among men by which we must be saved. Paul the Apostle wrote about this uh, similarly in his time and place. He too was was. Uh, serving under pressure from, from people who wanted him to stop. Stop teaching Jesus. Peter, or Paul, rather, in that situation, wrote 1 Timothy 2.5, There's one God, and there's one mediator between God and man, Paul said, Christ Jesus. The early Christians, the early followers of Jesus, knowing and understanding these facts about Jesus, knowing the truth about him, wouldn't bend on this. They wouldn't bend. They knew that to do so would be, first of all, for them to deny the Jesus that they worshipped. They knew that would be to deny Jesus who had saved them. They also knew it would be to leave people helpless in regard to knowing God and receiving salvation from Jesus too. And so they wouldn't bend on this. They wouldn't allow themselves to to be dulled to the truth, uh, to this truth by, by the constant chatter of people who said it's not true. Or by the chatter of people who said, you know what, well, sure, Jesus is good, but there's many, many other ways, too, to God. They wouldn't lessen their dedication to the ministry of Jesus either. And one of the things that we're learning from this is we learned basically what what Peter said. "This This is what you need to know about Jesus. Peter, remember, was teaching really the first sermon of the Church of Jesus Christ. It's very clear that he was teaching it by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit had arranged all this. And he basically lays out these facts. And he says, this is what Jesus is. A unique man, a unique person, a unique Savior, the one and only. And so we look at that and we say, okay, well, Peter's laying down. This is the truth about Jesus. But as we read this passage, we also understand this, that what Peter is teaching us is, We need to be as unbending today on that as they were then because that is the truth. And the hope of the world is bound up in that truth. And how can we then bend on that? So as we read this, we we realize, well, well, first of all, we need to be on, on guard against compromising our own beliefs because we can become taken in by the culture around us. And our American culture today is, is in much of it in denial of Jesus altogether. And in the state, and the county, and the city we live in, we don't live in a place where, where Jesus is accepted very easily. In fact, a lot of times there's a lot of animosity against the person of Jesus. And in that situation, you know, you can get so used to hearing, well, there are other ways to God, there are other ways to God. Don't believe that, don't believe that. And we can start saying, well, you know, maybe they're right. <laughs> maybe they're right. But, but what we need to, to realize is this message has always been the same. This person has always been the same. We need to not dull our senses and go, okay, well, maybe I'll just, I'll just all right, I won't, I won't hold up Jesus as the one way to God anymore. We also need to be careful not to put the ministry of Jesus below first place. Because if this is true, and we believe it is, if this is true, the evidence supports it, then what? This is the most important ministry in the world. And we can sometimes lose our devotion to the ministry of Jesus. What, what gets in the way? Well, just things we want to do for ourselves, Right? So the ministry of Jesus is important. We should be committed to it with our heart, soul, mind, and strength. We should put our efforts, our energy, our finances behind it because this is the most important thing in the world. But what happens? We can can get where if we look at the slot of things, you know, here's the list of things that are important in my life. Pretty soon we keep putting all this up above above Jesus. It's like, well, you know, my school, my my hobby, 
my sport, whatever it is, you know, this, the, all these things stack up above my devotion to the ministry of Jesus. Sometimes, you know, even we can be doing good things. We can be great, great volunteers in the community, and we should be. We should volunteer for, for good things. You don't have to do everything with the church. But the problem sometimes is, you know what? We got, we got Jesus right here, and we keep stacking all these things up here and up here and up here. And pretty soon the ministry of Jesus is something we're not very connected to anymore. And when that happens, we have to, have to ask ourselves a question. Who's going to do the ministry of Jesus if we don't do it? If we really believe this is true, if we know it's true from Scripture, if this is where the hope of the world lies, why has this fallen down to the bottom of the list? And if it has, well, if, if we're not doing it, who's going to? There's nobody out there that's going to go, you know, I'm not a Christian. I don't even really like Jesus. I think just to punish myself in this cultural environment, I'll just go out and, and, and advocate for Jesus anyway. Nobody's going to do that. It's only the people of Jesus who will take that upon themselves. But we can easily lose sight of that. A lot of times we get discouraged because we say, you know what, it's not going to matter in this culture very much because this culture is just too anti-Jesus and too hardened against, against Christianity. And that's true, right? I mean, that's just kind of the reality that, wow, it's, it's tough here. There's not a lot of background in the Bible. There's not a lot of Christians. Uh, it's harder to share the faith here. Jeremy and Carrie Michelson, who are traveling across country right now, they're family from our church, if you don't know them, they're headed down to South America to, to serve there, God's servants there in that place. And as they're traveling across country, they're driving uh, to Florida first. It, and we got an email from them, and in the email it said this. Here's the question they posed in the email, quote, So when do you know you're not in Oregon anymore? When you hear worship songs in the local McDonald's. Last night we ate dinner in Montana to worship songs playing in the background. I'm sure that wasn't all they were playing in the background, but I'm sure there are a lot of places that are much more open to Jesus uh, than, than here. It doesn't mean they always accept him either, but at least they're willing to say, well, there's enough people here who do, and we'll tolerate that as well. That doesn't always happen in Oregon. And sometimes we think, well, nobody will respond much to us. I mean, it's a, it's a battle you can't win here. But think about this. Think about uh, how likely it was that the, the, that the apostles there we're thinking the same thing about, about Jerusalem at that time. I mean, here they, they witness the arrest of Jesus, the death of Jesus. They know that, that their, their lives were on the line too. And, and they're, they're probably thinking like, okay, Jesus said we're supposed to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, then Judea and Samaria, and then to the uttermost parts of the earth. That's what Jesus said. You can imagine them thinking like, okay, we'll start here in Jerusalem, but we're pretty sure we're not going to make any headway here. So let's hurry up and get to Judea and Samaria and the uttermost parts of the earth, if that's what we're supposed to be doing. Certainly, they must have thought, this is going to be the last place where we see many people turning to Jesus. But, but look at what happened here. Notice, notice what happened. Did they roll their eyes that day when, when Peter was talking about Jesus and sigh in disgust and walk away? Did, did some of them threaten Peter and the apostles, you know, like, oh, yeah, well, shut up or you're going to get what Jesus got too. Now look at verse 37. Okay. What happened? Peter finishes this. Very bold statement. Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart. Who's they? That's the crowd. When they heard this, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? What shall we do? They were impacted by what Peter said. For the first time, they really got who Jesus was. 
They understood that they should have responded to him positively rather than apathetically or negatively. They shouldn't have been part of putting him up on that cross. And they wanted to know, is there anything we can do to change this? Is is there any hope for us? And notice verse 38 here, what Peter said. Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, Be saved from this perverse generation. And so then those who had received his word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. Added here means added to the church of Jesus Christ. Added to the list of true followers of Jesus now. How many were there in Jerusalem before this happened? It says in Acts 1, about 120 total. Now there's 3,100. 20, from Peter's one-time sermon. How did that happen? It happened because, guess who? The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, remember, makes this happen. He enabled Peter to speak the message about Jesus clearly and in an effective way, and he convicted the people of their sin, of their error, of their need for forgiveness, of their need to get on the same page with God. The Holy Spirit got in their minds and heart and made them realize they needed to do something. Did you know that that's one of the great ministries of the Holy Spirit, the ministry of conviction? That he prepares people to hear? Just as he did that day, he prepares moments when people will be ready to hear. And when they hear, he helps them to understand. And then he touches their hearts with with truth, but also along with that truth, with love. And he draws them to respond to Jesus. John chapter 16, we read that that Jesus said this is exactly what the Spirit would do. John 16, verse 7, Jesus told the disciples, this is before his death, he said, I tell you the truth, it's to your advantage that I go away. The disciples are always worried about that. If you go away, Jesus, what are we going to do? We're helpless. We're hopeless without you, Jesus. I tell you the truth, he said, it's to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper, that was Jesus' other word for the Holy Spirit. The helper will not come to you, but if I go, I will send him to you. And he, when he comes, will convict, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin because they don't believe in me. And concerning righteousness because I go to the Father and you no longer see me. And concerning judgment because the ruler of this world has been judged. Spirit is very active in many different ways. This passage in John 16 just touches on the subject in a very broad way, but it's very clear that one of the ministries of the, of the Holy Spirit is a ministry of conviction. The Holy Spirit works amazingly through us to accomplish that. When we're willing to, to forward the ministry of Jesus, to on our own part tell about Jesus just what we know, then amazing things begin to happen. God works through that. And that's why it's so important that we uphold Jesus as the way because we're the ones that this ministry has been given to. If we don't do it, who else will? Others need to hear about Jesus. The Spirit needs that moment to work. Did you catch also a while back the story, true story out of Portland, of uh, this, someone called the, the police, called 911, and said, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm witnessing 
a man kidnapping a woman. He has stuffed her in a suitcase, and he's kidnapping her. And so the police roll out to check out what's going on. Well, they actually find a woman stuffed in a suitcase. But as it turns out, she's not being kidnapped at all. It's, it's a guy and his girlfriend. And, and the girlfriend had been uh, banned from the apartment complex because she had gotten into some kind of fight there and did some, you know, broke some things and all that. And so they, they told her, you, you can't come back in this apartment. But the guy wants his girlfriend to come back. So he buys this gigantic suitcase. And whenever she comes over, he puts her in the suitcase with wheels on it, and he rolls her to his apartment. And then when they're done, he puts her back in the suitcase, and he rolls her out. Somebody witnessed her getting in the suitcase, calls the police, right? Crazy, isn't it? What people do. So, so what's this got to do with it? You know, sometimes we're, <laughs> sometimes we're like this with Jesus, though, aren't we? It's like... We're good with Jesus here. I mean, we, we mention his name, we pray to him, we, we sing songs to him. We go out these doors and it's like, well, I just put Jesus in the suitcase as soon as I walk out the door. We go to our homes, Jesus is back out again in the privacy of my home. But once I'm outside the house again, he's back in the suitcase. And this is a travesty, of course, because we're dishonoring the God who saved us and we're withholding from the world the possibility of them getting saved too. That's why... It's so important for us to let people know he is the one. But Peter here, just to make clear, you know, as Peter delivers this message, he does conclude in this way. He says, he says to them when they say, what should we do? He explains like, okay, well, here's what you do if you're getting Jesus. You know, if you're finally understanding, then, then this is what, what needs to happen. He says to them, if you, if you want to know the, what to do with Jesus, he's the one way You've got to know the way to go his way. And the way to go his way, he says, is what here in, in these verses that we just read? He said, first of all, repent. Repent is the word that, that Peter used here. And repent just very simply means this. Change directions. Change directions. You've been going one way, now go another way. Go the Jesus way. You've been going your own way, ignoring God and living basically a godless life. You've been self-centered, a sinful way of life. You're determining what you want to determine is right and wrong. So now do a, a spiritual about-face. That's what it means to repent. Put God on the throne of your life instead of yourself. Put him first. Honor him, worship him, obey him. Follow his way for your life, not your own. That's repentance. And that's an essential to go the way of Jesus. And so one of our, our missions in, in the bigger overall task of reaching the world is this that we let people know about repentance. We help no one by not bringing this up. And sometimes we get kind of, kind of uh, iffy, kind of uh, you know, not going all the way with what Jesus had to say. Sometimes we, you know, we may tell people, just ask Jesus for forgiveness and you're good with God. Well, Jesus does want us to ask him for forgiveness, but it is essential when we do that that we do so with a heart of repentance. It's not true that you can just say a quick prayer and, hey, everything's okay. To go the way of Jesus means to change directions, to abandon your comfort with your own non-God-directed way of life, and instead pursue godliness under the leadership of Jesus. We need to be diligent to help people know that. Part of that is that we explain it when we have the opportunity. We also, though, need to show them with our own lives. They need a role model to understand what repentance really is and to take it seriously. See, a lot of people get mistaken because they think, 
Well, repentance just means, oh, I hear you say some words. Jesus, I repent today of my sin. And then you go out and you keep living the way you've been living. And they start thinking, well, that's what repentance is all about. I just say, oh, forgive me, Jesus, and uh, I repent today and, and leave it behind. But, but no, that's not, not giving the true picture of what it means to, to lead people to Jesus. We lead people astray when we say, just say your prayer and you're in. We lead them astray when we give them a false impression. So we need to uphold repentance in our own life. If we're not doing that, if they can't tell the difference between us and the rest of the world, we've got a problem there. Number two, Jesus, or Peter rather, just said this very clearly. He said, be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. He says, that's the other essential. Be baptized in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins. Listen, here's what that does not mean. Okay, be clear on this. Here's what that does not mean. It doesn't mean go get a pastor to baptize you in water and say these words over you. I baptize you in the name of Jesus and so on. The Bible is very clear about this. The act of, of baptism or of someone saying words over you while you're being baptized, that isn't what connects you to God or brings about forgiveness. Baptism is not what someone else says over you. Baptism is what you say to others by what you really mean about Jesus in your heart. More specifically, baptism is your statement that in your heart you believe in Jesus. You accept him for who he is. You trust in him for forgiveness from God because he's the one person who's able to give it from God. And you let people know, my allegiance now is to Jesus. I'm committed to him as Lord of my life. In our Discovering Church membership classes, we often use the illustration, we're talking about baptism of a wedding ring. So I got married to my wife. I put this wedding ring on the, the day we did this, over 31 years ago. But, you know, just me slipping this, finger on, uh, this ring on my finger was not like, okay, I'm married. The ring was just a symbol of the fact that I stood up there in front of a whole church full of people looked my wife in the eye and with everyone watching said, I'm committed to be married to you, to love you and honor you and cherish you and so on. Baptism is that statement. It's that marker that says from here on, this is who I am and this is who I follow. When Peter said, be baptized in the name of Jesus, he was saying, uh, he was saying what you're doing in baptism is, is you're personally accepting Jesus as your Savior and Lord. And in your heart, you're made, you've made that decision. And this is a decision that you're going to begin to publicly and concretely and continually live out. And you're declaring it by what you're doing in baptism. For some of you, maybe that's a statement you really need to make. I mean, maybe you've been a Christian for a long time. You never actually made that statement. The scripture says that's an important statement for you to make. That you acknowledge to God and you acknowledge to others, this is who I follow now. This is who I follow. Repentance, baptism in the name of Jesus for forgiveness of sins. We need to be open and upfront about this with the world. We need to be open and upfront about this. This is what it means to really follow Jesus. Who's going to tell the world if we don't? Who's going who's to show them Jesus if we're not showing him in us? They will never see Jesus. They will never hear of Jesus unless we're willing to be the ones who, like Peter, would say, here are the facts and here's the reality of what you can do to have this relationship with God. And looking at this, we're not in any way saying, well, we all need to become Peters and get a big giant crowd and go preach or you know, bust into the, you know, your staff meeting and start telling everybody about Jesus. It's just that we need to live it out in real and tangible ways and speak the truth that we know when we have the opportunity 
Scripture says to do it with wisdom and grace. Speak words of grace when you do. To make sure that you do it. A while back, I, I heard uh, about this guy in Nevada. This true story. He, uh, a guy died. Um, he was found in his home. He was a, uh, you know, sort of a hermit. He lived in his home. He rarely came out. He died of old age in his home. When they finally figured out he was dead, they started looking for a will, and they started looking for, uh, for relatives, and they found neither. Couldn't find a will, couldn't find any relatives. So the state took over uh, looking at, at his estate. And as they began to look, they, uh, they found that he had $200 in his bank account. But when they went into his home, they found it was pretty messy, and it had, had lots of boxes and things around. And when they looked in those boxes, they found $7 million in gold and silver in his house. $7 million in gold and silver in his home. Only $200 in his bank account. You think about, you know, obviously he didn't trust the banks, right? <laughs> he liked the gold and silver. He probably liked it where he could see it. But you think about having $7 million all those years tucked away in his home. What could he have done with that? I mean, he could have done some fun things for himself, right? Even better, just think how he might have been able to use some of that for good instead of just hoarding it in his home. And aren't we like that if, if we've got this gold of the good news of Jesus Christ and we just want to sit on it? No, we have a better, greater calling than that. And that's what God's calling us to do. For some of you today, this is a, the perfect day where you say, you know what, I've got to cross that line into to really living out Jesus in my life, not just here at church and in my home. I've got to cross that line. For some of you, you're really realizing today, I never knew this what, what it meant to follow Jesus. I need to cross this line today by actually telling God, yeah, I'm turning your way, God. I'm repenting, and, and I'm making you the Lord of my life. You can do that with a simple prayer today, sincerity in your heart, and move that direction. Let's pray together right now. Heavenly Father, we're so thankful that you had a plan from so long ago that provided us the opportunity to know you, to be forgiven by you, to live forever with you. We're thankful that you have sent the Spirit, Lord, and the Spirit led us to have this relationship with you. We're thankful, Lord, that we have the opportunity to help others. Lord, maybe this morning here we've had some realizations of some changes we need to make in our life. Lord, we take this moment just to, to pray Lord, to, to just say to you, yes, Lord, I, I want to move this way. I want to move across this line. I need to get back to you first. Yes, Lord, this is my time to cross that line and, and to be baptized and to make my statement. Yes, Lord, this is, this is my time to be one who will stand for you, even when it's hard. Lord, as we, as we pray these prayers, we're going to sing these worship songs to you. We do them, Lord. We, we, we sing them with thankfulness in our heart for what the words say, with a realization of the greatness of you and, and what you've done for us. And Lord, as, as we sing, we're also praising you as we thank you. But Lord, we're also saying we're, we're committed. We're committed to letting this truth be known. Lord, by the way we live, and by the words we say, would you open the door? And Holy Spirit, we are saying to you, third person of the Trinity, we say to you today, fill us for this mission. Open these doors of opportunity. 
Give us the courage and the right things to say at the right time that others may know you. Lord, all this in the name of Jesus, our Savior. Amen.